0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Last week, uh, we addressed some dreams uh, for our church. Really asked the question, what, is it, what are our dreams for our church? And what are God's dreams for us? What does he desire us to be? What are some of the intrinsic um, identities of uh, being a follower of Christ? And we looked at being a compassionate neighbor. And being a compassionate neighbor, uh, as we learn, goes a long way to expressing the love of God in our world. I was reminded of a book that my friend published last year on the topic of of, uh, the mission of God, and one of his chapters was titled this, Displaying the Love of Christ by Washing the Feet of the World. You kind of get what the point of this is, right? It's that one of the ways that we display the love of Christ is in our outward-focused Uh, service and love, using our resources and our power and our opportunity to bless those around us. And he, rightfully so, and even as we acknowledge that being a compassionate neighbor is insufficient in itself. uh, If we desire to fully engage in the mission of God, if we desire to see people find rescue from the bondage of sin and come into the joy of knowing Christ, something more Must take place than just service, kindness, sacrifice. Not only are we to serve others, but we must open our mouths and proclaim the good news. Uh, We must, must preach or proclaim Christ. And so we have four dreams, and today we come to our final dream, and that is the dream to live out a public faith. I want to read two passages uh, for us today? One in First Peter, the other in Acts chapter two. If you have your Bibles, I'm gonna um, flip around, but today um, you can you can follow along on the screen. We'll have both of those in there. You can look in your bulletin for those specific references if you want to find them in your Bible too. The first one's from First Peter, the second from the Book of Acts. Today, they help together. They help us explain why why do we do this? Uh, the why of a public faith, and then the how of a public faith, and I think they work together rather well. Um, let's look at First Peter chapter 2, 9 to 12, and then Acts 2, 42 to 47. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word for us. You know, what these passages, and many like them, will show us in Scripture is that they will debunk kind of some common myths In the Christian tradition when it comes to engaging in the mission of God. Uh, Let's just use this term or phrase mission of God. We'll we'll talk about it a handful of times this morning to describe the activity of God in the world to fix all that is broken in the world. The forgiveness of sins, the, the restoration of broken relationships, the healing of God's creation, all that God desires to do in his world as he moves forward towards the new creation relationship with God that was broken between men and women and children and God. Relationships broken between people and the relationship that's been broken between people and the creation that God has given us for our good. He desires to bring wholeness and peace to all of that because things right now, as we could probably admit easily, are not the way that they are supposed to be. And so that's the mission of God. All accomplished through the purpose and person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, So let's look at a couple myths, three myths actually just really briefly, and then we'll get into the the meat of some of these passages. Maybe give yourself a little diagnosis too, if like if you've ever given into some of these myths. The first myth is that the mission of God is a solo performance. It's a solo performance, and who's really the performer in this? It's it's God. I mean, God has a purpose in the world. He's the one that wants to fix things. And so he's going to do it. He's going to accomplish it. And what's our role in that? Just look up to the clouds and wait for Jesus to come back. And so we're just waiting and we, we're just waiting in this world. We're seeing it kind of crumble around us. And, and we're just pleading with God, do something, fix something, make it all better. And some of us view this mission of God kind of like view, going to like a, a musical performance of a solo artist. We get our ticket. And now we just watch this artist just do his or her work eating popcorn and right and uh, watching the world burn. <laughs> What's our involvement in a myth like this? We just We just wait and we grieve the brokenness around us, and we just wait for God to do something. Another myth another myth is the second myth is that the mission of God is an isolated calling. So who should engage then in this work of god's mission and his goodness in the world and proclaiming the good news. Well, it's pastors and missionary, clergy, retired people with nothing better to do. It's those who have the time and the skill to do it. You know, everyone else, everyone has responsibilities. We've got our job. We've got our responsibilities and things to do, and the calling of ministry isn't it, and that's for somebody else. Uh, This is a picture of, of, I think, most church-going people, and I've even fallen victim to this as a full-time clergy. I've fallen victim uh, to this. One of my kids uh, comes to me one day, one of my daughters, and says, Dad, I wish you were a policeman or a soldier. So when our school did those parades, like, you could be there. <laughs> and you could be up front and kind of celebrate it. And I said, honey, that's, that's great. I was a policeman and a soldier, those are really good jobs. God uses those jobs to do so much good. And, but if I was a soldier or a policeman, I wouldn't be a pastor. And I, I, I couldn't tell people about Jesus every day. And she says, you could do both you could do both. In four words, my daughter is ex- expressing to me a, a more true biblical understanding of the mission of God than I was understanding. You could do both. Is, it, this isn't these like, you're either telling people about Jesus or you're doing your own job. Any of us ever fall into that? The third myth is that the mission of God is merely personal in nature. What I mean is this, when you read scripture and you see all the blessings of knowing Jesus and being in his family and enjoying the comforts of his salvation, the joy of his salvation, you apply them primarily in a personal way. My salvation, my transformation, my growth, growth, <laughs> my peace, um, uh, my relationship with Jesus. And of course, it is very personal in nature, but it's not only personal. You know, that's why the extent of most Christians' involvement in their faith is very personal, personal Bible study, personal prayer, personal rest and recreation. And everything that we do to grow as a Christian is isolated and personal. When we make the mission of God personal, we'll only spend time with other Christians. We will live in isolation. We'll enjoy the comforts of what we've come to know as the Christian bubble. Because we, we, we think uh, wrongly, or incorrectly, that the way that we engage in the mission of God is just focusing on our piety, our holiness, and being a more better and good Christian. And so we pray, we read scripture, we give to the church, we serve when we can, and we wait for God. These myths create a Sunday-only mentality when it comes to living as the church in the worship of God. And so Monday through Saturday we we kind of live in everything else is suspended the mission of God is kind of suspended for a week and we scatter throughout the world we do our job we lead our family we engage in recreation and then Sunday we come and we worship and engage in the mission of God the bible gives us a much different picture a much different picture let me let's let's look at it together let me show you the apostle peter urges all those who make up the church to take up their calling in, a very, in public life as a witness to the gospel. And the Apostle Luke, the writer of Acts, shows us in part how to do that. How every person can do that. Every person, in even the most simple and mundane ways, can view their life and their calling as people that engage in the mission of God and live out their public faith. I picked two passages in the sermon My hope is that it's not twice as long. Each of these passages could be a full sermon in itself, and many books have been written on it. Um, But let's consolidate these two today. Not everything can be said or will be said today. Let's consolidate our focus to look at three habits that define the outward-focused faith of the people of God. The habit of rehearsing the gospel story, the habit of shared participation, and the habit of public faith. First, the habit of rehearsing the gospel story together. It could be said that at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people, that God opened up a school, a school of learning, a school of remembering. And God's people were filled with joy and peace and the knowledge of God. And they got together and they just they just reminded one another of who God is and what He has done and the joy of being a part of his family. It's easy to see these early Christians as ones that were like carried along by the Holy Spirit. you ever read the New Testament like that? It was like, of course they did these things. I mean they were they were just like super Christian. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they everything was right in front of their face like in good. they could not do any any different. But you have to imagine that and the, and the scriptures even give evidence to this, that they were just locked in uh, to, in faith. And then the next morning they would wake up and say, Now, what was it again? <laughs> what was it about? What, what were we supposed to remember again? How were we supposed to live? What did Jesus do? And how does this apply to my everyday life? So they got together and they reminded each other and they gave each other one another. And, and God brought together a community of people and they rehearsed this story to, in order to reorient their hearts to this story. We do that every Sunday, as James mentions, he, he walks us through this story in our service that God is holy, that we have sinned, that Jesus saves us, that Jesus sends us out into the world, and every, day, every week we come back and say, remember that we are, we, we're living in this story and then we leave the church, and Monday we don't scatter into our lives forgetting that story and only looking back to, hoping to come back to Sunday to re- learn it again, but we live out this story. Like athletes, the the early Christians trained themselves for this. They trained not just for for physical health, but for spiritual health. They came together to learn, to rehearse the story of Jesus taught by the apostles. They would come around and they would remember the words of Christ. I'm sure there was times of systematic teaching. I'm sure there was times where they actually took notes and and they were instructed like that in a classroom. But the heart of this kind of teaching is for the purpose of, of growing in maturity. Being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, their whole way of life was so that they would be people that followed Christ. And in order to do that, they had to rehearse the story together. What was the goal of that? What was the goal to, what's the goal to gather on a Sunday? It's to believe in the gospel and to allow that to go deeper and deeper into our life so that we will orient everything in our life around that story. And so in a way, Sunday is a way of coming back and just saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's who I am. That's who God is. That's what he has called me into because I get so distracted throughout the week. Remember how Peter describes, describes the church in 1 Peter chapter 2? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may what? Now, how you finish that sentence is so important. Why has the goodness of God come to you? Why has his grace come to you? Why has he adopted you into his family and poured out his love for you on the cross? Why? So that you would feel better about yourself? So that you could judge the world around you and say, I made the right decision, what's wrong with you? So that you could, so that you could keep it private so that you could get this get out of, get out of hell ticket and say, I'm glad I, I got that. But obviously, you know the answer, right? We, we read it there. How, do we, how we finish it is so important. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It is supposed, it's supposed to pour out of you. This light, even we talked about last week, this, this light that fills us, this light that changes us. Sorry, that's a different Bible study I'm doing, not last week. I'm merging my two teachings. <laughs> this, 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 our life has been changed and this fountain in our heart overflows. And Peter is reminding them, remember who you are and remember for what purpose you have been created and brought together. It's not for your own personal consumption. <clears throat> so Peter's being very churchy. He's using words that are super churchy. He's using language reserved for what we would typically reserve for leaders in the church. He knows that, but he does something different with it. Look at that list of identities. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. So these people that have been set apart and sanctified for noble uses for God. All of these things Identities, these are old, tes- Peter takes these Old Testament identities of the people of God, none of them are chosen randomly, but are meant to describe the church's identity as a people whose life together activities are meant to display the goodness of God to a watching world. If we are going to think differently about our involvement in the mission of God, which I think, excuse me, which I think all of us do think about from time to time. We ask questions like, God, what's, how will you use me to kind of help meet the needs or address the needs of a hurting and broken world? Because all of us, we can see it. Our world is hurting. Our world is suffering. And from time to time, you'll probably ask yourself, how do I, what do I do about it? How do I engage? If we want to do that, we must learn how to drop Our preoccupation with thinking about church merely as a series of programs or events or a time of teaching or a place that we go, church cannot be that. In our culture from an early age, we learn that church is a building that you go to. I mean, what, what do you say about then a church that meets next to a Domino's and shares a wall come in around noon this smells good in here. What do you say about a church that meets next to CVS? What do you say then? Well, I'm going to church. This is the point where I tell you, a church is not a place you go, but a people that you are. Right? And then the fun, cheesy way of saying, like, it's human beings, not human doings. Right? <laughs> Sorry. That was bad. If we forget what it means to be the church in a collective sense, and I and I'm gonna say something pretty strong. We will forget what it means to follow Jesus. If we lose that identity, we will forget our identity as a follower of Christ. How and so so consider this. How has how has the pandemic, you know, look at it, how has the last 10 months or Even those who are here in person and and, and those who are, are watching at home, think about it. How has the pandemic over the course of the last year formed your habits to think differently or even maybe even expose your habits and belief about what you believe about your collective identity with the people of God? I imagine lots of ways, right? I imagine, I imagine it's it's challenged a lot of things. I mean it's even it's even exposed a lot of things. I mean it's even thinking, well, I've just gotten used to the comfort of just being at home and, and watching from home. What bad patterns have slipped into your life in light of the convenience of, of not having to go to church and still get a message? What critical needs of remembering the gospel in community, are going unmet for forgetting this part of our identity as God's people? How has it affected your heart to go so long? I mean, we can go a little, a little time without that diet of remembering and sharpening one another, but over time it builds. How has it made you malnourished? How is your heart doing? I don't know. I, don't, I haven't met anybody, not a single person that said, This is exactly what I needed. 10 months, nobody in my life. <laughs> I haven't met anybody who has said that. Even introverts are saying, I think I need people. And then you're like, Whoa, what's happening? <laughs> I think friendship's important. We need to rehearse the gospel story together. We need a way of life of connectedness with others. There are other habits, of course, demonstrated in these passages. Let's look at the next one, and we'll revisit some of these things as we go through. There's a lot of overlap. The habit of shared participation. Sharing faith means sharing life. Sharing faith means sharing life. Having it in common, having this faith in common, means that there are more things in common. A devotion to Jesus implies a devotion to his people i love jesus i just cannot stand his people well jesus loved and loves his people so much he gave his life for them so maybe you don't maybe you're loving something else and i get it it's hard we see this displayed in the early church through their sharing of their possessions our passage in acts shows this most clearly They ate together, they gathered together, they prayed together, and then and then and then Luke tells us they had all things in common. This is a a radical demonstration of their unity and in their shared life together. All things in common? All things in common. What, What does that mean? I mean, can that really be true? Political views. All in common? Same parenting principles and style, uh, same food tastes, uh, same ethnicities. I mean, what does this mean? It can't be true, right? We know it's not true in those areas. We know that the church was actually quite diverse in uh, ethnic identity. We know that the church was mixed with with Jews and Gentiles and became increasingly Gentile. And even the majority became outsiders. The majority of the church became outsiders. So we know that all in common doesn't mean sameness. So, so what does it mean to have all things in common? It means this, and it comes from their understanding of being the church. If we share in the fellowship of God together through the Holy Spirit and the blessings of Christ, is there anything in our lives that is exclusively ours? The answer is no. And we can admit that this is unusual, because I think our culture, and in, in, in this Western American culture in particular, has probably perfected the idea of what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. If you want what I have, figure out a way to go get it. The early church had no private lives that belonged solely to them. Because if God owns us, if God has purchased us by his blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are his possession, then a lifestyle of biblical fellowship begins with the surrender of the notion, my life is my own. And nothing, I cling to nothing of my own. And that translated to their material world. And I admit that this is radical, but let's not try not to be distracted by the radical the radical image of this, of this really like this communal idea. And this isn't a prescription. He's not saying so. Then everybody has to do that, right? So everybody open up their wardrobes. Everybody open up everything. but, But it has. Let's focus more on why they did that. It means that a person invested in Jesus and devoted to Jesus will invest and be devoted to, at least to some degree, to the bearing of burdens of the people that God has brought into their life. Here's another hard statement, but it's true that we see from the pattern of God's people in the early church that you cannot faithfully obey the heart of Christ as an isolated Christian. And they demonstrated that. And for them, it was just reasonable nature of like, if we belong to God and he has ransomed us for his use, then our whole lives are his. We don't have these truncated lives where we have worship on Sunday and, 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 and we have our, uh, our recreation and we have our work and we don't live segmented lives. All of life is all for Jesus. I want you to notice in our Acts passage, uh, two very important emotions that that kind of are part of their gathering and a part of their life together. Uh, do you see them? One's in verse 43, it's that word awe, and then in verse 46, it's that, that emotion, uh, glad and generous hearts. It really means this exaltation and sincerity of heart this word awe, everywhere else it's 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 translated as the word fear. It's actually the Greek word phobos, which we get the word phobia. You've probably heard that before. But we see this word, so what is going on here? They have this fear, and then they have this, they have this generosity of heart, and they have this gladness. These are two emotions that we often don't see together, right? What a strange pairing. But here's what's happening: these are emotions which come to a person when he or she realizes with such clarity why they exist and for the very purpose they are here. There's this heaviness. You have those moments where it's like, it's like this epiphany. This is what I think what I was made for. So there's kind of this, this, this heaviness, but also this gladness, this joy, this like generosity of heart. Moment of fear, yet met with this moment of uh, this unaffected joy. Do you ever have moments like that? I think that's probably rare for us to have moments like that. But can you imagine what that is like to say, this is, this is it. This was what I was actually created for. This is why I was saved. This is why Jesus made himself known to me. And then everything in your whole world kind of starts to be brought in focus because you found out the meaning and purpose of your very life. That's what the disciples felt. That's what the early church felt. And then they lived their life out of an expression of that, moments of clarity. And this is how it should be for us today, being devoted and connected to um, others, to carry one another's burdens, to remind one another of the life that we have and the rich blessings of Christ that are ours That's really why we exist. We exist to be encouraged as we are reminded of Christ who loves us, who gave his life for us, that we are accepted and secure and significant, not because of our record or our character, but because of his overflowing love for us. That he loves us so much, that God loves us so much, that he would give his only son for us. That he would take our sin on the cross, that he would face our worst nightmares, that he would die the death we deserve to die, that he would live the life we deserve to live but failed to live. And then in these moments of clarity, and we say, this is what I was created for, and what would be a natural response to that? My God, my life is yours and everything in it. And you would start to have the eyes of compassion for one another. You would start to see the world around you and say, this is what I was made for, to be a window for the world to see the good news of God. I won't cling tightly to anything that's mine because that's a gift that God has given to me and I have everything that I need. I won't judge others, but I will pray for them and be compassionate and and have pity for them. I won't keep private, but I I will enjoy, I will open up my life and everything I have for the good of God and the joy of others. And you might see that as radical, but for for the early Christians, it was just another day. It was just another day. Finally, what brings us to the final habit, the habit of a public faith. Our passage from 1 Peter and Acts describe a time, and I want you to consider this in the appropriate context, a time in Christianity when Christianity flourished and grew, in a culture in which people cared only for those in their own tribe or their own camp or their own thinking. It grew in a time where literally you could be any religion you wanted to be except Christian. It grew in a time where Christians were being imprisoned and murdered for their faith. Christianity was illegal in the region region with no church buildings, not even next to their local pizza place no Bibles in the hands of ordinary believers, no mass communication and means for mass communication, no youth groups, no worship bands, no seminaries. And they even had in Rome, we know from history, they had at the time of the early church, two widespread viral pandemics as a result of poor waste management and decaying bodies in the street and people were getting sick and dying. And in the midst of these pandemics, in the midst of these persecutions, in the midst of all of these hurdles, and in a culture in which Christians were oppressed and killed, Christianity spread at an incredible rate of expansion over the entire empire of Rome and to the ends of the earth they were irresistibly attractive and they didn't even, to our knowledge, at least from what I can tell, had no jumping castles and no food trucks because they were not so preoccupied with their own Bible study and their own prayer and their burden bearing that they neglected the witness of their faith to a watching world. And they lived out the reality of the goodness of God that they had received and they lived it out. And the world looked at them and said, you guys seem to know why you exist and you're living with such abandonment and contentment and generosity and love for each other where everyone else is running and hiding to just, hoard what they have because they don't know what the future is, but you seem to be flourishing with joy and gladness, but also with awe. You're taking, your, you're taking your life seriously, but you seem free. What do you have? What do you got going that we don't understand? And they were so attractive. They were so in love with Jesus. They were so at peace With his blessing, they were so reckless with their generosity to one another that it drew the world in. It drew them in. What is the church intended to be? The church is meant to be an irresistibly attractive alternative to the way of life of the surrounding culture. Do you get that? Are, is your life and our life collectively as a church and as followers of Jesus giving the world an alternate, alternative, I cannot say that word, A different, <laughs> a different way to live? Or are we just trying to take our cues from the world? Look at everything that is breaking, everything that is painful, everything that everything the political chaos, the pandemic chaos, the people keeping to themselves or or cursing another, are we giving the world a different way? A third way, a third way, instead of saying isolate yourself and just remove yourself from what you don't like or attack the side that you don't like, are we giving people a third way? A different way of living that is attractive and true and beautiful? This is why the church spread. Because they had something that the world needed. They had good news, and they actually lived it out. You see, it's critical to notice that the church was was never, and is not today, a community to be secluded or cut off from the people of the world. That That has never been the practice of God's people is just to get away from the world. The remedy for a church that is too inward focused is to remember that we, what we're intended to be. But we have, there's different kinds of Christians, right? There's, there's private Christian. The private Christian has lots of friendship with all kinds of people, yet their faith is private from the outside, from people outside of the church, right? Maybe if you have ever heard from somebody when they have found out that you go to church or that you're a Christian, that they said, seriously? I would have never guessed that. You're a private Christian. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it means you're a private Christian. You keep it to yourself. A 20-year high school reunion, I told someone I was a pastor, and she goes, shut up, no, you're not. (laughs) That's a private Christian. A secluded Christian has lots of friendships in the church, but doesn't have any meaningful friendships outside the church. So a secluded Christian is opening up their faith and sharing their faith, but only with other people who share their faith. But then there's the public Christian, pursues meaningful friendship with those inside the church and outside the church, allowing their lives to be a public testimony of the grace of God. Jesus did this so much that he was accused of sin. He was accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of being a a sinner. He was accused of being a glutton, been accused of those same things, but for different reasons. Because he was always with people outside the church. He was hanging out with sinners. He was pursuing them. And he was bearing testimony, a public testimony to the grace of God. He was drawing people into a third way of living. Think about it. Imagine if you showed up to work tomorrow dressed in a clown costume. How difficult would it be for you to bring up a conversation regarding why you're wearing a clown costume? Kids, if you showed up at school tomorrow, like with your your mask worn like on the back of your head or something, why are you doing it that way? Why is it that Christians have such a difficult time being public in their faith? I'll tell you why. Because there is often nothing notably different in how a Christian lives and in how a non-Christian lives. Christians are called to stick out. And, and not because they're being ridiculous, not because they're being rude, not because they're just being loud, but because their lives sing of a radical generosity that they have received because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. In a world of me first, we are generous with our time and our possessions. In a world of hurt and regret and pain, we proclaim forgiveness and hope found in the gospel. We don't write people off when they let us down because that's what the world does. In a world of superficial friendships, we are deep in the pursuit of others. We are long-suffering with the struggles of others. Why? Because that's how Jesus does it with us, and it's what the world desperately needs. Do you want to look for opportunities to stick out? Then, then do this. Here's some practical ways. Just evaluate your routines, your daily routines, your weekly routines, your monthly routines. Think about what you do on a normal day. Driving to work, like what, what places do you drive by? Where do you go? Where do you sit during lunch? I mean, who do you talk to on a break? Uh, where, who, do you, who do you spend time with most at the office? Think about your weekly routines. Where do you go grocery shopping? Do you, have a, do you have a favorite cashier that you go to every time? Do you have a favorite barista um, that you see all the time? Are there regulars at the gym that you talk to? Monthly routines, you know, who cuts your hair? Where do you go out to eat? And so you're thinking, well, how do I engage? How do I do this? How do I be public in my faith? I mean, I'm not going to go to seminary. I don't feel called to that. God hasn't given me that calling. And, and it's not he's not going to call everybody to do that. Think about this, how could you, could you add a community element, a community component to those normal rhythms? Can you involve somebody into that process, into into that rhythm? Could you add somebody outside of the church and invite them into what you're doing? Are you working on your car? Are you going to this place or that place? Can you build these relationships? And you think about, how can I do this not as a private person? How can I do this not alone? so that my life is connected to people and God could give opportunity for relationship and trust to happen. Can you identify in those times opportunities within those normal routines to discuss and apply the gospel? You know those opportunities are there countless times, especially now. This is a time in our life and culture where I am simultaneously most grieved in our world and the, and, and the witness of the church, and also most excited for the opportunities that are here for the Christians. What better time and more easy is there ever been a time to be a witness to the world of the love of God when our whole world is hurting? in multiple areas and arenas. I mean, you got people out of work, you got financial pain, you got relational pain, you got cultural pain, you got political pain, you got financial, you got all kinds of pain. I mean, you think of an area of the human constitution, every part of it is hurting right now. God has given us such opportunity to not be disconnected, but to engage thoughtfully and lovingly. There really are a few examples, like real explicit examples in Scripture. We, we talked about a couple here, but it's really not seen a ton where, where it's told prescriptively how for ordinary Christians uh, to, to engage in God's mission and to have a public faith. And this could be for a couple reasons. One, the work of sharing your faith is reserved for clergy only, right? So they don't talk a lot about it in Scripture because it's not for normal people. But that's, we we already know that's a debunked myth. It's for everyone. And so another reason is the life of the Christian at the time that the Bible was being written, these these letters were being written, the life must have been so unique, so distinct in character that people would ask them about their habits, about their faith, about their belief, about why they do what they do. They didn't need to have a class on how to find non-Christians. Non-Christians came to them. People who are hurting came to them. Are there people in your life who are hurting? Had a friend pass away, someone who's sick and crippled with fear, someone who's lost their job? Wow, you have so much opportunity to not just serve them and to help them materially, but to to also open your life to how you trust in Christ, sharing your testimony, sharing what you believe and how it's given you new life. The last thing I want... Is for these things to be just like a checkbox, a, a box to check. It's like, okay, I'm looking at my routines, I'm gonna talk to this barista, I'm gonna find these things, right? I don't want it to be just a box to check. Having a public faith is, it's not a technique, uh, it's not a program, it's not a, a weekend project. It's a conviction that your life belongs to Jesus and he's invited you in to partner in the beautiful work of bringing the good news to the world in all areas where it's broken and hurting. So that's why having a public faith begins not with a technique or a strategy or a how-to, but a public faith begins with you loving Jesus more and more every day. It is about loving Jesus in this true love of Christ and loving what he loves and drawing close to him and being in relationship with him and sharing in fellowship with him propels you then to move towards others as he has moved towards you. Because as you grow in love of God and appreciation for what he has done, you will, sit, you will ask questions like this, why have you loved me so much? I don't deserve it. And then you start to think, well, who who doesn't deserve my compassion? Who doesn't deserve my attention? A true love for Jesus will propel you towards others so that you can introduce them to your greatest friend, Jesus. But he has to be your greatest friend. He has to be your true love. He has to be your companion and your greatest treasure. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek him as your greatest treasure. Love him so much. And then he says, everything else will fall into place. Right? I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. It'll fill up. Your your life your heart will be like a fountain that overflows and goes downstream and hits everything along its path. But in order to do that, that love of God has to be the head of the fountain. It has to be at the very top. Be passionate about him. Think about Jesus so much until he captures your heart and he overflows into your life. That's the how-to. And I know that's not very easy. But that's that's his desire for our heart, that we think about him so much, that we dwell with him so much until he captures our heart and all we can do is be more like him. And if all else fails, just wear a clown costume to work and talk about Jesus that way. So the book of Acts is so fast-paced. A lot of people like this book because a lot of action in it. There's a lot of things happening. It's a fast-paced narrative filled with action-packed events, and then it just ends. It really feels like the book just like falls off a cliff. It's like Luke was interrupted and he never came back to it. And there's actually a handful of scriptures that that are treated that way that do that, and that's on purpose. And when this happens in other biblical writings, it's it's a literary technique that scholars have identified. It's a literary technique to say that the story that the author is wanting to tell is not over. And it is meant for the listeners and readers of the story to pick it up and to continue it. Isn't that great? The reader is meant to find himself or herself in the story of the early church. Rather than looking back at the early church and saying, wow, it, was, it seemed like a great time back then, a lot was happening. We are meant to read that and say, we're supposed to pick up that baton, partner with God in his desire to, to, to advance his kingdom in the world, and we are meant to live out these things. We are meant to join in to the story. Rather than engaging in a solo performance, God chose to execute his mission in a very peculiar way. He formed a human community and he set that human community in a broken world. And then he called us to love him more than anything and to let our light shine. We are meant to be the nucleus of this new creation that he is calling into being. That's our purpose. That is what he's created us for. And in that, there is joy, there's contentment, there's unshakable peace, and we get to partnership with God in what he's doing in the world.